Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here in the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org slash donate. For today's episode, Ebony Bailey speaks with Lauren Ornelas. Lauren is the founder and president of Food Empowerment Project, which is a vegan food justice nonprofit that promotes veganism, fights for workers, and works on lack of access to healthy foods in black and brown communities and low-income areas. She's been an animal activist for three decades, during which she has launched numerous groups, investigated factory farms, run consumer campaigns, and helped stop the construction of an industrial dairy in California. Among other topics, Ebony talks with Lauren about why she says that food is power, whether vegan products are really cruelty-free, how exploitative food practices disproportionately impact communities of color, her organization's work with farm worker rights, and about their efforts to promote healthy food access to low-income communities. And now, here's Ebony and Lauren. We are here with Lauren Ornelas. Lauren is the founder and president of the Food Empowerment Project and has been active in the animal rights movement for more than 30 years. She has been involved in numerous food justice campaigns and gave a TED Talk about the power of our food choices. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and your personal story in relation to food advocacy? Sure. It's interesting because I kind of feel like my food story or my life story kind of helps show why and how I created Food Empowerment Project. Um, but I'm, I'm a proud Hicanix, you know, so I'm Mexican, 100% Mexican. Um, use the Hicanix to, you know, identify the indigenous roots. Um, so, but I grew up in Texas and um, I was raised by my mom, basically. My parents got a divorce when I was really young, and my sisters and I were raised by my mom. And my parents got a divorce when I was like four. And growing up in Texas, I would often see the cows in the fields. And when my mom started having to leave me places and I wasn't with my family as much, I, you know, it was difficult. It was painful for anybody. But I think I really started to associate um, what was happening with the other animals, rather it be cows in the fields or even the ants and think, wow, I don't want to, I don't want to take their lives away. I don't want to separate this family. And obviously this is in retrospect, not that I was thinking this way as a child, but more that as a child, I just empathized and hurt with the thought of, of separating anybody's family. And so um, I, th- I actually went vegetarian when I was in ele- elementary school initially. And I think it was be just because of the thought of not wanting to hurt anybody's family. But, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And, you know, my mom sometimes worked two jobs. My sisters and I all had jobs. And um, we weren't able to, I wasn't able to stick with being vegetarian. You know, after a while, I just had to eat what people brought us. And so um, I had to give up being vegetarian. But my mom had always raised me with a deep understanding of the boycott of grapes started by Larry Itliong and also followed up with uh, the United Farm Workers with Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. And so I had a deep understanding of farm worker justice issues at a young age. And so finally in high school, 
um, I decided that, you know, I was going to go vegetarian. I didn't care, you know, if I'd eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day. I just don't want to hurt another animal. Um, and then eventually went vegan. So I went vegan in 1988 when I was in high school. And, you know, basically just did animal rights. I mean, I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. I was, you know, boycotting companies um, that were still vested in the regime in South Africa. So I had other social justice issues that I was involved in, but I really was passionate about the animals um, because I felt like it was easier for me to do something about it. I was against the death penalty, but there you know, wasn't a whole lot I could do as a teenager. But I could make sure not to go to circuses. I could make sure not to buy makeup tested on animals. You know, I felt like there was more I could do. So I started to dedicate my life to that and, um, you know, eventually worked for some national animal organizations and then ran an organization called Viva USA, where I conducted investigations at factory farms and slaughterhouses and ran corporate campaigns. And in doing this work, I was always wanting to still tie in farm worker justice issues. At the time, there was going to possibly be a boycott called of strawberries. So I very much wanted my organization to, you know, talk about that. I had also learned in 2000 about slavery and child labor in the chocolate industry. And I felt as rocked in my body as I did when the first time I saw a little chick being debeaked for the egg industry. You know, it just rocked my life. And so just like any new vegan does, we talk about these things. And so I started talking about what was happening in chocolate. And I started to receive a lot of pushback from animal rights activists who felt that I was hurting the animals by talking about other social justice issues. Um, during this time in 2006, I went to Caracas, Venezuela, and I spoke about the impact of animal ag on workers, communities, and of course the animals. And, you know, I was flooded with so many people from all over the world, especially Latin America, who were talking about other issues I cared about, from water privatization to immigration issues to worker issues. And I just felt so alive, like not only because I was at an event where people looked like me, um, that I just decided, like, I can't just do the animal rights work anymore. I've been, I feel like I've been stifled by this. People are complaining that I'm hurting the animals by talking about human rights issues. I want to start an organization where I define the mission, I define what it is that we do, so no one can complain, because this is exactly um, our mission statement. This is why we're being created. So that's how I started Food Empowerment Project, as a way to really show, you know, and I wanted to talk about bricklayers in, you know, India or corporate makers in Pakistan, but, you know, it was like, you know, I needed to focus it on something, and food was a perfect way to focus it because it's something that those of us with privilege do several times a day, so we have more power in controlling what we purchase, but also how we speak out about these issues. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's interesting that you became vegetarian at such a young age, and you made all of these connections so young, and that's been, that's been influencing how you go about your work even until today. And I know you already touched a little bit about how the Food Empowerment Project came to be, but what do you mean, um, because I see this a lot um, in your organization, what do you mean when you say that food is power? Well, you know, when we created the organization, when, when I created the organization, I always use we, because we were, were so small, but, um, you know, Food Empowerment Project, um, when we were, when I was creating it, one of the things was like your website should, you know, talk about what it is that you believe in, that the core of what it is. And I thought, well, food is power because one, by being able to grow your own food, it's very empowering. 
and it is it is power, right? Because your office system for black, brown, and indigenous people, for us to be able to grow our own food means we're not being part of a system that was never created to help us thrive. It was never, it was always created to take away from us, not only um, our, our own physical labor, our capital, um, but also our mental, you know, what we felt about ourselves. And so especially colonization did that to us. So I feel like food is power is reminding us about that, but also our purchasing power and our collective voices are power. So if we want things to change, we have the power, you know, again, if capitalism is out there to take away uh, from black and brown and indigenous people, we also need to turn around and say, we have power. We have power to say, you don't, you need to pay people a living wage. You need to stop treating people like this. You need, you know, to do these other things. And so there is power behind food and we have to wield that power to do good for others. And so I think it's just for me a constant, constant way to remind people that we do have some power and we need to take that responsibility seriously. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I think it's, it's interesting because we, we look at like what's in front of our plate and a lot of times we don't think about, the history behind it or what that means in terms of the larger society. And so it's cool when we, when we use words like power to bring back the power that it is to just have something under, uh, in front of us in our plate and what that really means for society. Others have used that power to dominate us. And so, you know, we can use it now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. I think that food historically has been a way to has been like a tool for oppression, but I think it can also be a tool for empowerment. So that's something really important that I'm glad you touched on. And I also wanted to talk about cruelty-free foods because we see that a lot, especially in vegetarian and vegan spaces. So a lot of times when we see the term cruelty-free, it refers to foods or products that are free from animal products. But are vegan products really cruelty-free? What do you think of this term? You know, I would say that me back in, you know, the early 90s was probably all about saying it's cruelty free, you know, if it didn't involve the suffering of non-human animals. But, you know, as you learn, you, you can't ignore the reality. And the more we ignore the reality and we say things about vegan foods being cruelty free, it just shows our ignorance, in my opinion. And so when I hear cruelty free, that to me, that means that nobody's being harmed by it. That means human or non-human animals are in, being impacted by it. So if I see, you know, a recipe booklet from a group and they've got chocolate in it, um, if they're not talking about the issue or telling people how they can buy chocolate that isn't involved in uh, child labor or slavery, then it's not cruelty free. And unfortunately, you also have farm workers in, in this country and around the globe who are treated horrifically. And our food is not cruelty free, just inherently if it's got produce in it because of the way the farm workers are treated. Now, again, if somebody grows all of their own food, absolutely say it, you know, you know how you were treated. But if you're buying your food, um, somebody else has picked that produce, especially if it's part of the system that any grocery store is pretty much going to sell. I think it's harder to say that. I think it's harder to say that just be, you know, that it's cruelty free because of the way that human animals are also treated in the food system. Yeah, and you've already touched on, on this. I've, I've noticed that you've mentioned this a couple times about the power of growing one's food, but a lot of times um, 
For example, in a lot of low-income communities of color, people don't have their own properties or their own space to grow their own food. So what does growing your own food look like in these sorts of communities? Yeah, I think this is when, you know, when we talk about lack of access to healthy foods, people want there to be like one solution. And the situation is, is that every community is going to be different. Their needs are going to be different. The type of foods that are culturally appropriate are going to be different. And I'm somebody who has only ever rented. I've never owned property. I don't know that I, I don't even believe in it. Um, but, you know, if you don't have, a, you know, your own space to grow your own food, what is there? And I think that that's when, you know, as as Food Empowerment Project was starting to work on this issue, I was like, okay, so we need to have a solution for people who can't, you know, just don't, that is not an option. Maybe the soil is even contaminated, who knows? And that's when we started to turn and look at things like worker-owned cooperatives. Because worker-owned cooperatives, different from member-owned cooperatives, worker-owned cooperatives mean that the owners are the ones who make the decisions. And the owners of these cooperatives are the ones who live in the community and who have the best interest of the community at heart. They are the ones, you know, making the decisions about where their profits go. They're also making the decisions on how they want to give back to that community. And so we strongly want worker-owned cooperatives in these communities because, one, the money isn't going back to some other state. The money is staying in the community. And two, it teaches entrepreneurial skills that will last any worker a lifetime. And then they can go and get any other job they want and having these owner skills to their name. So we've been working with Mandela Grocery Cooperative in Oakland, California, to try to bring that to the communities we're working in because we strongly see that's the solution. The solution is not going to be more grocery stores in the neighborhood if those grocery stores are not truly looking out for the community and they're looking out for their own shareholders. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know about that that cooperative. I'm going to, or that organization in Oakland, I'm going to look them up. And I think it's cool because at EcoSave, in our organization, we talk a lot about local initiatives and how local local action can inspire global change. So I think it's, yeah. it's, it's very important to focus precisely on these local issues. Exactly. And that's where the solutions are going to come from, right? In the communities we do work and we make an assess, I should say we only go into communities when we're asked because we follow environmental justice principles. But in the community, it's like we ask the community, what are the barriers you're experiencing? We do focus groups right? Because the solutions are going to come out of the community. And if you aren't listening to the community, these things are going to fail. And then who are you going to blame? The community, when really it's your fault for not talking to anybody. So absolutely, I agree. I mean, local is, is really it. And I, think, I mean local in terms of everything, including the importance of getting involved in elections and your elected officials as well. Because we may not have influence over that federal government as much as we'd like, but we can with our local government. Yeah, exactly. I think we we as a society have much more impact locally and everything than we do. Um, I think local can make systemic changes in ways that we don't quite imagine just yet. Absolutely. And you've also talked in our conversation a lot about farm workers, and I've looked into your work with farm workers, and I think about my own story. So I grew up in California Central Valley, which is a huge agricultural region for the U.S., and my own family migrated from Mexico to the valley to work in the fields as farm workers. Can you tell us about the work that the Food Empowerment Project does with farm worker rice and the impact you've had on the 50-mile rule in California? Sure, and thank you and thank your family for feeding everybody, because that's exactly what farm workers do. They feed everybody. And so just to thank you, because I think it's very important that we respect and honor that. Absolutely. 
And obviously your parents did what they could to make sure that you had a better life. And that's what we find from most, all the farm workers who have kids is they're doing everything they're doing for their kids to have a better life. Um, But, you know, in the United States and even in California, you know, we have farm workers who are homeless, who are living in cardboard boxes along the rivers, living in pickup trucks because they're not being paid enough. The growers are simply not being paying them enough when, again, we know right now they've been deemed essential workers and yet we're still not paying them, recognizing how essential their work is. So, um, you know, they, they don't make a lot of money. Women are experiencing horrific treatment in the field, rape, sexual assault um, on a regular basis. They are still dealing with agricultural chemicals when they're working. They're still dealing with, um, you know, the bottom line for, for farm workers is because they're not being paid well is why they're living, you know, 16 people to a one bedroom apartment, why they are homeless why some don't have a roof over their head, why they travel in the vehicles together, which is, you know, part of the spreading of COVID-19 and why they don't have health care because they're not provided in the fields, why they don't have breaks, why they suffer from a lot of um, occupational problems because of the way in which they're treated, not paid well, they don't have health insurance, it's not like they get paid sick time. You know, these are things that are being worked on in states like California, but enforcement is always going to be the key. So um, our work for farm workers, um, again, unless you grow your own food, you have a farm worker to thank for everything you're eating. And so because it's not like an animal product where we can say, you know, if you care about animals and you have access to healthy foods, go vegan, you can't necessarily do that. Everybody needs produce to thrive, not just vegans. So what we try to do is we ask people to support campaigns called by farm workers themselves. Farm workers are asking us to boycott. We need to honor those boycotts. We need to not buy products and from the go to the companies that they're asking us not to buy from. We also do a school supply drive for the children of farm workers every year, which is part of what led to our work on the 50 mile regulation. So in California for a long time, there was a regulation on the books that required farm workers living in labor camps, which is a small percentage of them, but those who lived in the labor camps, when the picking season was over, they would have to move 50 miles away from that labor camp in order to be able to go back into that labor camp when the season started again. So this meant that they had to pull their children out of school because some of the seasons um, in California for picking starts in May and ends in like, gosh, I wanna say October. So the kids would be pulled out of school. They wouldn't be able to complete the school year. So we worked several years with the regulatory agency, providing them with the documentation they needed to change this over and over and over again, having meetings, having protests, doing letter writing, doing everything we could to get the, this regulation changed. But it wasn't until um, a very um, smart policymaker was able to get it as part of a piece of legislation. And so now that that regulation doesn't exist anymore and the children are allowed to complete the school year. But that's only been, uh, I think, two years now that they've been able to do the school year completely. Wow, and c- congratulations on, on your work with that. That's really important, and that's really powerful as well. And also, when we think about food practices, there are a lot of, in today's world, there are a lot of exploitative practices within food, such as factory farms. And a lot of times we relate that to the animals and to the environment, which are both very important. 
but we don't quite relate that to humans or how this is related to other social justice issues. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think exploitative food practices such as factory farming have worked to disproportionately affect communities and specifically communities of color? It's a great question. I think that it does in a, in a variety of ways. If we look at the animals first and foremost, um, we have their suffering to deal with. So one, you have their suffering and their death which isn't, you know, animal consumption isn't good for one's health. What's good for one's health is a diet high in fruits and vegetables. So one, we're impacting their health. Two, you have the fact that colonization is what brought milk to many of our lives. Um, my ancestors certainly um, didn't, didn't have milk. It wasn't until Columbus brought them over on the fourth voyage. So you have colonization and the forcing of these products on us, which isn't good. You also have that the vast majority of workers in slaughterhouses are black, brown, indigenous, and immigrants. Um, and it's disproportionately impacting them. Their rights are taken away. They are threatened with things like deportation if they try to speak out against their own safety, much less um, insanitary practices that are being done. You have um, just factory farm workers in general, you have the same situation, you know, and nobody, nobody grew up thinking I want to work in a slaughterhouse and kill animals all day or cram animals into trucks. I mean, that, that nobody wants to do that. And that's soul killing, I believe, as well. But you also have, if we step beyond this, the, the slaughterhouses and the factory farms themselves, you have the communities that are also impacted by the negative pollutants. So what we, what's called environmental racism, where black, brown, and indigenous communities are more impacted by negative pollutants than whiter and more affluent communities are. And you have this with you know, oil refineries and docks and all sorts of things, but you have it also when it comes to factory farms. When you have people who live in, say, North Carolina, who are predominantly black and indigenous, and you have pig farms, which I've investigated pig farms, and I'll tell you, they smell horrific. Um, just showering and trying to get the smell out of my hair, which was much longer at the time, and my clothes, I mean, it was just really, really impossible. And you have people who are living near these facilities who suffer from respiratory problems, nosebleeds, headaches. Um, they can't open their windows in the summertime because the flies are so bad. The color of the water, even coming out of these sprinklers, is unnatural because of all that these animals are being fed and what they're eating. And, um, but you also have their property values are worthless because no one's going to want to live near one of these facilities. In the Central Valley where you lived, um, you have the same things with the dairy industry, where it's predominantly Latinx community members living. You have some of the highest rates of asthma. So again, these are situations where the animal agriculture industry is like impacting people in a variety of ways when you look at it, from health being consumption and health living near them as well. Yeah, and I think that that's... So important. I was thinking when you mentioned the Central Valley that asthma was such a norm growing up. I didn't even think that it was, I thought that everybody had asthma because it was just such the norm. And it's kind of the same where when, like you mentioned the smell of the pig farms in North Carolina. I remember when we used to drive from my hometown to one of the other towns and the only thing you could smell was like cows. And, um, yeah. I mean, just one dairy cow produces 120 pounds of wet manure a day. And that's one cow. Think of all the cows you would see when you're driving around. I mean, they're like 200 to the thousands. 
So, you know, that's a lot, of, a lot of waste. It's impacting a lot of people's health. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because we used to joke around how, oh, we're from a place where there's more cows than people. But now that you talk about this, it's like, oh, what are the social implications of that, you know? Right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know, where, I, where we're based is in Sonoma County, California, um, which has a lot of dairies as well. But what's happening is that people, because the cost of living is so high in San Francisco, it's pushing everybody north. So we're having more people who aren't used to living near dairies living. And what are they doing? They're complaining about the smell. So, you know, and things will probably end up changing one way or another out here because of that fact. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's an important point because it shows that everything is connected. Gentrification, displacement, farming, yep. all of this stuff is connected. Definitely. And it's, it's, it's really refreshing talking to you and talking about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um, there's also the issue of food access, which you did talk a about a little bit with your work in Oakland. We know that not every community has equitable access to healthy food in order to make these healthy food choices. What other work has your organization done in order to promote healthy food access in low-income communities? So our work is actually in Vallejo, um, which is not too far from Oakland. Um, if you don't know California well, just think it's between San Francisco and Sacramento. Um, but it's a, it's a community that's predominantly Black, Latinx, and Filipinx. And so just the lack of access to healthy foods is a problem throughout the community. Um, so what we've done is we did a physical assessment of the, the city where we um, surveyed for um, frozen, canned, and fresh fruits and vegetables, as well as meat and dairy alternatives. Um, we put out a report with our findings, um, which we shared with policymakers. And then we went back out into the community and we did about seven focus groups, one conducted all in Spanish, where we asked the community, what are some of the barriers you experience and some, what are some of the solutions and what do you think about these ideas and would you be interested in them? And of course, overwhelmingly, when people thought about, oh, wow, I could get all my produce from Vallejo's People's Garden. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely be into that. Okay, what if you could be an owner of your own grocery store? Yeah, yeah, I'm interested in that. So what we did is we did community meetings where we talked to people more about um, what a worker-owned cooperative was, because in the focus groups we did, only one person knew what that was. So that's when we brought in people from Mandela to talk about um, what a worker-owned cooperative was. So we did three of those community meetings. We've also done an event every year called the um, Vallejo Healthy Food Fest, where we have free vegan food available all day long, um, culturally appropriate. For people to try but we also have cooking demos um, speakers performers all from the community all celebrating the, the diversity of Vallejo and we talk about obviously lack of access to healthy foods and um, we'll be doing it this year but virtually so that will be interesting um, but it's something we do every year and I just want to mention one of the things we found in doing this work when we started doing our work in Vallejo we found that in downtown where there was predominantly seniors living as well as black and brown folks. Um, Safeway Grocery Store, which is a chain in California, but also goes under the name Albertsons or Vons or a couple other different names. Um, they had left the downtown area and relocated a couple miles away to another location. And with, when they left that downtown location, they put what's called a restrictive deed on it, which prevents any other grocery store from moving in. They put a deed on their property for 15 years saying no other grocery store could move into that community. 
We found out that this is happening all across the country where grocery stores like Safeway and Albertsons are deliberately impacting communities' access to healthy foods by preventing grocery stores from moving in. So we have a petition on our website that we ask people to sign to ask them to stop this policy. Um, but we also have leaflets and posters and other ways. We're just trying to get people to hold Safeway accountable for what they're doing and literally and deliberately impacting the health of black and brown communities. Wow, I didn't know that about Safeway in the grocery store, so I'll definitely be checking that out on your website. Thank you. And now that you mentioned that you were doing your food fest virtually this year, this had me thinking, or it has me curious, how has the pandemic affected your work at the Food Empowerment Project? It definitely has impacted it. I mean, one, in good ways, in, in not good, that sounds really bad. Uh, what I mean by that is it's really highlighted to people one thing that about farm workers and the necessity. And two, I think it's shown people that when they've gone to the grocery store and they haven't been able to buy what it is that they want, they're starting to understand what it's like in communities that don't have access to healthy food. So I, I hope that what it did is made people realize um, what some people live like all the time. Um, it's impacted our work, obviously, financially, as it has everybody, but it's also impacted, like, our school supply drive we do for the children of farm workers every year. We had to spend a lot of time figuring out, how are we going to do it this year? We can't have drop-off locations. We're not going to be able to do packing as we normally have. So we, are, um, we found a um, source uh, that actually does prepackaged materials. So we're going to get still have people send backpacks, but have people donate to help us buy backpacks as well as buying these kits so there's less touching going on. Because usually it was like, you grab two pencils, then two erasers, and then some highlighters, and you know, and then everybody's touching everything. But now we'll just have this one kit that, that we'll insert into the backpacks. The Vallejo Healthy Food Fest is another way that we've been impacted is because we can't have the event as normal. So now it's gonna be all virtual. Um, but instead of, you know, we won't have materials for people. So we, what we're doing this time is some of the money that we're saving from not having the space, we're actually going to be able to send free vegan cookbooks to some of the participants. Wow, that's awesome. And I think what you said about people realizing how it is for other communities or lower income communities to have access to food, I think that's a very important point. I do think that even though, as you said, like the, there's, not, there's nothing good, quote unquote, about the pandemic, but there it is an opportunity for us to have I guess more empathy or just yeah. kind of see what it's like on the other side and also for humanity to just know in general that we're all connected obviously the pandemic affects us in different ways but it's affecting yeah. all of us absolutely and the food empowerment project also works to increase global consciousness in terms of our food decisions you have a campaign that raises awareness on chocolate and child slavery in West Africa can you tell us a bit more about this campaign Sure. Um, so when I learned about it was in about 2000 and I saw a documentary where the reporter asked a former slave, what would you say to Westerners who eat chocolate? And the former slave said, when you're eating chocolate, you're eating my flesh. And I thought this is the same thing as a non-human animal would say, I need to, I need to think differently about chocolate. And so, you know, and learning more, you know, you find out that, you know, children and are being enslaved. Um, and we're talking about slavery. We're talking about kids who are locked in overnight, who are beaten if they try to escape, and adults as well. Um, the children uh, are, have to carry heavy bags of cacao 
that can weigh up to 40 pounds, even though it may only be seven years old. They're using machetes to cut the cacao pods out of the tree, cutting and injuring themselves often. You have millions of children um, who are victims of the worst forms of child labor, including slavery in Western Africa. You have a similar situation starting in Brazil now, where Brazil was not listed as one of the countries that had forced labor in the chocolate industry until recently. So, you know, you have this problem and for chocolate, which is literally a luxury. Um, and you're having children who are trafficked hundreds of miles away from home where they don't even speak the local dialect. So what we've tried to do is inform people about what's happening and encourage them to what we call eat your ethics. You know, if you don't support child labor, then don't be eating, or slavery, don't be eating chocolate that's sourced from company, companies that still engage in that. So we've created a list of chocolates we do and don't recommend based on where the cacao is sourced from. So we don't recommend any company that's sourcing from Western Africa or Brazil. Brazil, with a few exceptions, only because at this point in time, it's still so new what's taking place there. If a company can show that they're paying the, the workers some of the profits and actually giving them living wages and giving them benefits, then we'll consider it. But for the most part, that's not happening at all. I mean, the, the people who are doing the work are not considered at all. Um, which is why, which is the insulting part is these corporations are making billions of dollars for chocolate. And yet the farmers who are the ones doing the work aren't getting paid enough money to actually pay the people who are doing the work. So they're having to, to rely on slaves and child labor or a matter of both. And so um, we're wanting people not to be a part of that system to, to check out our list of chocolates we recommend and the ones we don't recommend. And if a company you like is not recommended that you tell the company why you're not going to buy from them anymore because it's one thing for us to make our individual choices but we have to use our collective voices to demand change by these corporations so the list is on our website we update it once a month but we also have free apps that people can download that are in the form of for apple and for android thank you and that makes me think about exactly what you said, like we have a lot of power in our individual choices and I think it is great to look at things in a systemic view, but also how our individual choices affect the, the wider system. So what is the long-term impact you see specifically for this campaign? Well, I recognize that Food Empowerment Project is small and a lot of the companies that we're targeting aren't going to be some of the big corporations because as a vegan organization, the company has to make at least one vegan chocolate to make our list. But our long-term goal is to really show these companies that we do care and that we demand better for these workers and they have a responsibility to be paying them better. And I feel like um, the younger generations seem to get this. Like, I don't feel like I need to explain to them any of Food Empowerment Project's work like I have to people my age or in between that I don't need to explain how things are connected. They get it. I don't need to explain why people need and deserve a living wage. They get it. So I'm hopeful with this new, this new, you know, as these youngins and people your age get older is that you are the ones forcing this change that corporations are not going to be able to behave as they have before that they're going to be told, look, unless you're going to show us that there's, you know, cause you know, there's a lot of these certifications out there and certifications need to be questioned because they're not working. And so instead, we need to we need to hear these corporations saying we're using worker owned cooperatives and the workers are the ones who own the chocolate that they're producing. It's not us. 
they're owning it and they're bargaining with us and they're selling it to us. And until that happens, I don't think we're going to see any improvement, but I think it's possible. Um, I do, I mean, especially right now, how can I not feel, you know, a little bit excited about the direction of how young people are changing this world. Um, but I am hopeful that it will change that those in West Africa and in Brazil and all of the cacao growers are the ones who hold the power and not the corporations in the West. Thank you. And now to go on a lighter note <laughs> to talk about <laughs> food and recipes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm half half Mexican, or my mom Yay. is Mexican American. My Mexican. dad is African American. Exactly. Yeah, half sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, you're black and you're Mexican, and that's exactly. like the perfection as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I like to say black sican. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I grew up eating Mexican food and. As when I turn vegetarian, mostly vegan, trying to be vegan right now, vegetarian, um, Mexican food was the first thing that that I went to to in, in order to cook uh, vegan and vegetarian plant based Mexican recipes. And I saw that you had a booklet on Mexican recipes. And that was actually one of my first references for uh, vegan Mexican recipes. So thank you for that. Oh, cool. Absolutely. <laughs> And I also see that you have um, a website for Filipino vegan recipes. And as I mentioned, like I personally love this um, also because I feel like there's a myth in a lot of communities of color that our food isn't quote unquote vegan friendly. So why did you decide to make recipe booklets from these two different cuisines? And do you plan on expanding it all into other cuisines? Yes. Um, I mean, I created veganmexicanfood.com because one, you know, I wanted our people to have our comfort foods veganized, um, but also to show ve uh, non-vegans how easy it is um, to convert many of our foods. And I think that part of the reason of that is because we got to remember that my ancestors, your ancestors, we weren't necessarily eating a lot of animal products. Not, we're not going to say we were vegan because we weren't but we didn't eat as many animal products. It was Columbus who brought the cows over, you know, we weren't doing dairy at all. So, you know, our food isn't, you know, our food unfortunately is a combination of indigenous, which is a good part and colonization being the other part, but it was really important to show and reflect that. And so that people would know, um, you know, to come to food empowerment project, you know, I'm Mexican. I started the organization. It's really important for us to see other than white people led vegan organizations. Um, so we created veganmexicanfood.com, which is in English and Spanish, and also the booklets in English and in Spanish. Um, my colleague Erica um, is half Filipina, and we have another um, proud uh, Filipina part of Food Empowerment Project. And I was like, hey, we created VMF for me. What about creating vegan Filipino food for you? And she was like, yes, this would be great. So we created veganfilipinofood.com, which is in English and Tagalog, and that will be coming out in a booklet later on this year. One of our um, long-term board members, who's also one of our, was our first intern, is Lau. So we're actually working on veganlaofood.com right now. So um, yes, we're looking to expand it. Our new executive director is from India. So I'm um, hoping to add um, some vegan Indian recipes as well. So, you know, just showing that, um, you know, we're not white people making up these recipes to try and get black and brown people to go vegan. We're vegans and we are the black and brown people. Thank you. That's great. I love that the recipes are coming from those 
people from those communities. Uh, yep. It makes me feel like, I know I love it when I, when I, for example, the other day I made a salsa from my friend's mom who's from Grenada. And I was like, oh, I love having like a mom recipe, you know? <laughs> yeah. My mom's um, pico de gallo recipe is what's on our, what's on vegan Mexican food. And my brother-in-law's recipes, there are a lot of them on there too. So, yeah. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Um, just to, I guess, close out, as many of our listeners know, this podcast talks about the types of systemic transformations that we need to move toward a more sustainable society. And although food can be seen as something highly personal and individual, as we had mentioned before, we know that it can have a huge impact on systemic change. So Lauren, what kinds of shifts do you see, do you think are needed uh, in our food systems in order to move toward a more just world? Um, <clears throat> it's a great question. I wish I had a brilliant answer. Um, you know, I think that the most important thing people need to do is have some compassion and empathy and the ability to put themselves in other people's positions um, and recognize, I, I'd like to think that maybe it'll start with maybe people seeing grocery store workers during this pandemic who didn't really have a choice, who started to be called heroes, but just because they, they needed a job, they, it's not like they had a choice, but we saw the grocery store workers working during the pandemic. We know they're not getting paid like doctors are who are working the pandemic. We know that they are working because they don't have a choice because they need to get paid, but they worked. And the more that we can humanize everybody in the supply chain, from the farm workers to the truck drivers to the grocery store workers, the fast food workers, I think we would see it. We will hopefully see a shift in recognition. Now, unfortunately, what comes along with that is racism, where people are racist and they don't see farm workers as human. They don't see, they see somehow that these farm workers are superhuman and they're working in these fields because there's something about them that they can do this work, but nobody, you know, no, I couldn't do that work. Instead of recognizing, no, they're exhausted, they're tired, their bodies are aching, but they're doing this for a better life. And they have that determination. So I think there needs to just be a shift in how we view each other. And, you know, I think some people are able to do that and some people are blinded by racism and they're not able to see that. So I know that probably sounds a really negative note to end this on. Um, but, um, you know, I guess I'm just coming from a place right now where racists are just out of control. And um, I just, I, you know, I can't really say that I think that, that oh, yeah, they're going to come see the light. No, nah, I don't know. <laughs> but I hope everybody else does and they see who it is that's feeding them during this pandemic. Thank you. And I think it's a really powerful, powerful note to end on. I think that there's something to be said about the way that we can shift society. And there's also something to be said about how we can empower our own communities. And, and yes, worry about what, how other people are seeing us, but also know that when we're empowering ourselves and communities and our allies and things like that, that that's going to, I guess, overshadow 
or over what's the word yeah kind of like overshadow yeah. the the racist voices you know? hate, so, yeah yeah exactly the hate. hate exactly no totally spot on well put yeah so thank you so much for being here, Lauren. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I think that the work that you're doing is incredible. I I don't know if I had mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but I followed Food Empowerment Project um, in my personal journey of becoming a vegetarian. So thank you so much also just for your platform and all the work you're doing. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been fabulous talking to you. And I hope that we can figure out ways maybe we can work together in the future. Yes, thank you so much. Bye.